It's Sunday, July 3rd, 2016. Imagine becoming the lover of your dead wife's sister, only to have her die as well. And then the ghost of one of the women, or both of the women, come back to haunt you, and maybe even accuse you of murder. Get ready for this haunting story in the 95th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. For those listeners that are in the United States, this is the 4th of July weekend, and I expect every one of you to have 10 fingers come Tuesday morning. You know, time is running out for the Coffee with Jeff mug contest. If you want a chance to win a free Coffee with Jeff mug, just send an email to me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com saying, I want to win a damn mug. What are you waiting for? You can also use Facebook and Twitter for this purpose, if that's more to your liking. We will pick the winner on my 100th episode. Oh wait, look, we've got a little UFO news. The headline reads, UFO hunters claim they have found an underwater alien base on Google Maps. Yeah, it appears that an alien researcher believes that he has found evidence of a giant pyramid beneath the surface of the Pacific Ocean, and that could be an alien underwater base. Scott Waring of the UFO Sightings Daily blog said, Even if this is not a UFO that landed in the ocean that's being used for an alien base, it's still a monumental discovery. Then he goes on to say, It's an 8.5-mile pyramid, biggest the world has ever known, and it's right off Mexico, near the ancient Mayan and Aztec pyramids. Humans could never have built such a construction. Only aliens could accomplish making such a massive structure. Now, I don't want to say that maybe Scott may have jumped to a conclusion very prematurely. After all, he's just looking at an image on Google Maps, and, well, maybe a little more investigation is needed before we assume that uh, a giant spacecraft landed in the ocean, and, well, Scott, you know, everything unusual isn't necessarily alien-related. Now, according to the Irish Examiner, the sighting was quickly revealed to be a rock formation known as the Sails Rock that lies off the coast of Deception Island. You can use your own judgment on who you want to believe. Anyway, today's story is of two women, both who died, a couple of men who refused to pay back loans, and a pre-teen girl who was allegedly used for angry spirits to point a ghostly finger at the man who may have done them wrong. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. 
Can a man step away from his past into a future free from fear? Or must a dead past return, making of every living moment a time tortured, tormented? <laughs> tormented, holding you spellbound for the she-ghost of Haunted Island. I'll never let you marry me. You belong to me, Tom. You belong to a ghost. Tom Stewart killed me! Tom Stewart killed me! Many believe that hauntings are when the spirits of the dead have not moved on to the next world or have come back from the other side. What is the reason why they lurk in the timbers of old homes rather than moving on like the rest of the deceased? Well, some say that these souls have unfinished business here on the earth. Business like punishing those whom they feel are responsible for their untimely demise. On January 12, 1762, in a room full of people attending a seance, William Kent exclaimed to whoever it was that was communicating from beyond the grave, Thou art lying, spirit. You are not the ghost of my fanny. She would never have said such a thing. To many in the room that day, the mysterious knocking was all the proof they needed to hang William Kent for murder. After all, he lived with this woman. He had gotten her pregnant out of wedlock, which wasn't only a sin, but it was also illegal. It was obvious that now that she was dead, she had come back to accuse him. Apparently, Fanny Lyons could not rest in peace as long as William Kent walked free. There was a time when William Kent looked like he was going to have a fairly happy life. This was around 1756 in Norfolk, England. He fell in love and married Elizabeth Lyons, the daughter of a well-to-do grocer. The two moved into the English countryside of Norfolk in a place called Stoke Ferry. Kent had a good job and soon Elizabeth was expecting their first child. Unfortunately, Elizabeth died while giving birth to a son. To help William in a time of need, Elizabeth's sister, Frances, who was commonly known as Fanny, moved in. Sadly, William's son did not survive long, and even though he was gone, Fanny continued to live in William's home. No one can say at which point their relationship changed, but soon the widower and his sister-in-law became lovers. According to the law at the time, they were forbidden from being married, so they decided to live in sin. The well-to-do Lyons family wasn't happy about this relationship, and William must have also felt uneasy about it. In January of 1759, he gave up his job, left Fanny, and moved away in the hopes that business would erase the passion he had unfortunately indulged. Fanny, meanwhile, stayed with one of her brothers, but wasn't ready for the relationship to end. She began writing passionate letters to William, pleading with him that they should spend the rest of their lives together. Her efforts paid off. He invited her to come live with him, and the two began living as man and wife. And to prove they loved one another, they made out their wills, making each one the main beneficiary of their estate. They moved into lodgings in London, hoping to keep the true nature of their relationship a secret. William made a loan of about 20 pounds to his landlord. 
But somehow the landlord found out that his new tenants weren't married, and he might have found that out from Fanny's family. And so to express his contempt over the situation, he refused to pay back the loan. William ended up having his landlord arrested for not paying back the money. All this meant that William and Fanny needed to find a new place to live. They had a new place picked out, but it wouldn't be ready for some time, so they began looking for a temporary situation. And this is where Richard Parsons comes into the picture. Richard Parsons was the officiating clerk at the local church, who was also known as a drunk who struggled to provide for his family of a wife and two daughters. He was a type of man who was known to have the tendency of being in debt. One day after the early morning prayers, Parson met William and Fanny, and after hearing about their struggles the two were having, offered them the use of his home on Cock Lane. Of course, since William offered to pay his rent in advance, and that Parsons was always in debt, that might have had something to do with his generosity. Cock Lane was in a section of London that was a respectable but declining area, located on a narrow, winding road. The area for rent was three stories with one room on each floor connected by a winding staircase. William and Fanny were happy with the place and decided to take Parsons up on his offer. Over time, the two men became friends, so much so that eventually Parsons asked William if he could possibly lend him 12 guineas. William lent him the money. Parsons agreed to pay back the loan at the rate of one guinea a month. Once they had agreed to the arrangement, they shared a drink or two, and while they were bonding, William told Parsons the secret of his relationship with Fanny. The ghostly trouble began when William went away to a wedding in the country, leaving Fanny at home alone. She felt uneasy about staying in the house by herself and asked Parsons' 11-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, to stay and share the bed with her, to keep her company at night. During one night, they began to hear strange, violent scratching and thumping sounds, which kept them awake most of the night. In the morning, they told Mrs. Parsons, and she thought it must be the neighboring shoemaker. On the following Sunday, when they knew the shoemaker was not working, they found that the sounds continued. They began to wonder if William's first wife, Fanny's sister, had come back because she wasn't happy with William and Fanny's relationship. Now at this point, Richard Parsons and William Kent's relationship began to sour. There are various reasons given for this. Some reports say that Parsons refused to finish paying off his loan and were unhappy with the fact that the couple were not actually married. I've also read that he began blackmailing the Kents with the threat of letting their secret out. But whatever the reason was, William and Fanny moved out. William put the matter of the money in the hands of his attorneys. And by this time, Fanny was six months pregnant. Soon after moving into a new place, Fanny began to get sick. She was put under a doctor's care, and soon it was determined that she had contracted smallpox. As time went on, her condition worsened. Fanny knew that she was dying and quickly began to make sure her will was all set, giving almost everything to William. When Parsons found out about Fanny's condition, he began to tell people that this was God's punishment for the couple's sins. The noises at the Parsons' home, by the way, had ceased for a while, but suddenly it began again. 
and it always seemed to take place around the sleeping daughter Elizabeth. The family looked for a logical explanation and even hired a carpenter to remove the wainscoting in Elizabeth's room, but he could find nothing to explain the noise. James Franzen was the landlord of the nearby Weed Sheaves Public House, a local drinking establishment, a place where William Parsons was a frequent customer. It is said that one night while he was visiting the home of the Parsons, he saw a ghostly white figure ascend the stairs. He rushed home in terror. Later, Richard Parsons visited him and claimed that he had seen the ghost as well. Meanwhile, Fanny's condition worsened, and by February 2nd, 1760, she and the baby she was carrying passed away. William Kent was grief-stricken after having lost a second wife. For the funeral, William had the coffin lid screwed down so viewing the body was not possible. Some would claim later on that he did this to prevent signs of poisoning from being noticed. When it was announced to Fanny's family that she had left her siblings a half-crown apiece and everything else to William, the Lyons family began to take legal measures to fight the will. William began to put his life back together and within a year began to work as a stockbroker and got married for the third time. Now back to the Parsons' home where the sounds continued. They called a very respected man named Reverend John Moore to help. It didn't take him long to figure out the noise were caused by spirits. Perhaps the first noises were of William's first wife and maybe the current noises were from the ghost of Fanny who was unhappy about something. Maybe both women could not rest until they revealed to the living something that disturbed them. To find out just what the spirit was trying to communicate, Reverend John Moore had an idea. They were going to ask yes or no questions, and one knock would mean yes, and two knocks would mean no. Now, since the ghost seemed to be directed to the 12-year-old Elizabeth, wherever she went, the ghost went as well, she would have to be involved in the experiments. So a series of seances soon began. Now, at this point, we have one of those choose-your-own-adventures part of the story. The more skeptical version claims that Richard Parsons charged people for attending the seances, while the more paranormal-friendly versions claim that he never profited from the situation. Anyway, there were times when the home was filled with people, crowded around the 12-year-old as she lay in bed, waiting for the scratching and thumping to begin. It was a big story in London, appearing as the main feature in the London papers. With a series of yes-or-no questions, the story came together. Fanny was poisoned with arsenic two hours before she died by William, who put it into her pearl, which is a drink of herbs and ale. Fanny's ghost wanted justice. This, of course, quickly made the newspapers. William Kent, who at the time had no idea that this was even a thing, found out by reading those newspapers. As the stories continued, William became more terrified at what was being said about him, and eventually he met with the Reverend John Moore. Moore had serious doubts that Kent murdered Fanny and suggested that he attend a seance. William agreed and quickly traveled back to Parsons' home. 
On January 12, 1762, a group gathered in Elizabeth Parsons' bedroom, including William Kent and two of the doctors who treated Fanny when she was dying. They were all told to be respectful of the spirits, as that it wouldn't answer if it thought it was being ridiculed. The young girl was undressed and put to bed. The bed was in the center of the room, letting the witnesses stand all around. When the seances began, a relative of Parsons, Mary Fraser, ran around the room shouting, Fanny, Fanny, why don't you come? Do come, pray, Fanny, come, dear Fanny, come. When nothing happened, it was thought that there was just too much noise in the room and many of the visitors went downstairs. A few minutes later, Mary Fraser came down the stairs and said the ghost was back. Soon, Mary Fraser was asking the ghost's questions. Are you the wife of Mr. Kent? Two knocks, which means no. Did you die naturally? Again, two knocks. By poison? One knock. Did any person other than Mr. Kent administer it? Two knocks. After more questions, a member of the audience exclaimed, Kent, ask the ghost if you shall be hanged. He did so, and the question was answered by a single knock. Then Kent exclaimed, Thou art a lying spirit. You are not the ghost of my Fanny. Fanny would have never said such a thing. The Kents once employed a maid, Esther Carlyle, who was known as Carrots because of her red hair. She had since moved on to a new job, and at this time didn't know anything of the hauntings. Reverend John Moore went to question her. Carrot said that she had been so upset about hearing of Fanny's death, she was unable to speak for days. Moore invited her to the seance. This was on January 19th, and William Kent again attended. Once there, she was asked to confirm that Fanny had been poisoned, but Carrots remained adamant that Fanny had said nothing to her, telling the party that William and Fanny had been very loving and lived very happy together. When the seance began, Carrot asked the spirits a few questions. Are you my mistress? There was one knock for yes, followed by a few scratches. Are you angry with me, madame? Again, there was one knock. Then Carrot told the spirit, Then I assure you, madame, you may be ashamed of yourself, for I never hurt you in my life. And at this point, the seance ended. Over time, the young girl Elizabeth was put through all types of tests, with believers trying to prove that the ghost was real and non-believers trying to prove it all a hoax. At one of these tests, the spirit promised that, if the group traveled to the vaults where Fanny's coffin lay, it would make its presence known by knocking three times on the coffin. The whole situation was a huge public scandal for William Kent, and he wasn't happy about it. The Parsons' home was often filled with spectators, and onlookers regularly blocked the streets outside. In an effort to give his family some peace, Elizabeth was moved to a larger house nearby, but the ghost and the crowds followed. Even fashionable society figures such as the Duke of York and King George III's brother came to see the strange goings-on. 
Eventually, the Lord Manor of London took notice. He was hoping to find a logical explanation for the phenomenon. He announced that Dr. Samuel Johnson, the author of the first English dictionary, along with some other important people, would investigate. The first test was on February 1st, 1762, but they were disappointed that the ghost did not appear. They decided to travel to Fanny's coffin to see if the ghost would live up to his promise. All the investigators as well as William Kent traveled to the final resting place of Fanny, but nothing that night happened. Over the next few weeks, more testing was done, and at one point, allegedly, voices were heard being whispered. One night, the investigators rested the child in a hammock with her hands and feet tied, and that night, nothing happened. For the next two nights, no sounds were heard. And then on January 21st, Elizabeth was told that this was the last chance to have the ghost appear, otherwise her father and mother were going to be sent to Newport Prison. It was on that night she was seen concealing on her person a small piece of wood. More scratches were heard that night, but observers concluded that Elizabeth was responsible for the noise, using the wood that she had hidden on her body, and that she had been forced by her father to make the sounds. Many people that night said the noises that were heard were nothing like the sounds that had been previously heard, making many people conclude that the child, afraid that her parents would be sent to prison, were forced to make noises to imitate the sounds. Therefore, being caught faking the noise doesn't necessarily mean the haunting was a hoax. But for most, that was enough evidence. Five people, Richard Parsons and his wife, Mary Fraser, Reverend John Moore, and someone named Richard James were all put on trial for fraud. Brought by William Kent against the above defendants for a conspiracy to take away his life by charging him with the murder of Frances Lyons for giving her poison, therefore she died. The trial took less than a day and the jury came back with a guilty verdict in only 15 minutes. It seemed the court firmly believed that the whole thing was a hoax. Richard Parsons was given two years in prison and Mary six months. The others were all fined money, money that went to William Kent for damages. William Parsons the whole time continued to protest his innocence. Now brace yourself as we take you across the threshold of our haunted mansion where there's a ghost for everyone in the family. Father, mother, sister, brother. You'll be scared stiff too when you see what they see. Thirteen ghosts materializing in ectoplasmic color through the magic of Illusiono. The ghost viewer, the evil ghost in the bedroom, fighting to take possession of this beautiful girl. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. So this is one of those stories that just doesn't have a satisfying answer for anyone. Those that believe that this is a real ghost story, and there are many who do, still have to deal with the fact that five people were convicted of fraud. For those like me who believe that everything has a logical explanation, this story, even with the court's decision, just doesn't sit right. There are so many aspects of this that just don't make any sense. 
I mean, are we to believe that the Parsons concocted this whole scam just to get revenge over a few guineas? That they would actually try to have Kent hung for murder? And the sound started before Fanny died. So what was their motivation there? Maybe William Kent did kill both of his two wives and they both came back using the young girl to get revenge. At least that seems to be what a lot of people believe. One version of the story that had an explanation is that the Parsons' daughter suffered from epileptic fits and maybe that it was her shaking and violent movements that caused the noise. I personally am not sure about this. I mean, if the stories of her bed being moved to the center of the room and people standing all around are true, then you would think that someone would have noticed. That's the other reason why the piece of wood theory just doesn't seem to work for me. Are you going to tell me that all these people were standing around and no one figured out what was going on? They were watching the girl. you think they would have noticed her scratching on the wall with a chunk of wood. I guess one explanation could be that the whole family was involved and certain people at certain times were causing the noise when they wouldn't be noticed missing, I guess. And why, if this was all a hoax, did the Parsons hire a man to search the walls of the bedroom to find out what was causing the noise? Unless all this was part of their master plan. So, since I don't believe in ghosts, I think the real truth has not yet and probably never will be discovered. But in my heart, I believe there was a logical explanation. And as far as I can tell, no one really knows what happened to William Kent or the Parsons or anybody involved. On a side note, the 19th century author, Charles Dickens, you may have heard of him, made several references to the Cock Lane ghosts in his books, including A Tale of Two Cities. And I will point out, like I have done in the past, that this is just my version of the story. Wherever you go to hear about the story, it's always a different version. Do not take my version as gospel. This is just what I got out of reading all the versions I could find. Do your own research. And feel free to tell me if you think I'm wrong. And now, the ending credits. You know, we at SciCon could really use your help in keeping our podcast going. I know I say this every week, but you should really think about becoming a sponsor and, you know, help pay for all this entertainment you get every week. Just visit our Patreon page. And for that, you can just go to SciCon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M for more information. And of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who are already supporting the network. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. On this week's Who's Who, the Doctor Who podcast, Brecky and Petter talk about the classic Doctor Who episode, The Androids of Tara. Now, right now, they're in one of my favorite eras of Doctor Who. This is the area in which I first started watching the show, and I love listening to these podcasts. You should also check out a few of our other shows at PsyCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, do it, okay? I answer every email I get. And don't forget to enter our contest to win a mug... 
You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. I'd love you to join that. If you have any story ideas, you can tell me about them at any of those places. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, just go over to iTunes and leave me a review. Those reviews really help. And remember, links to all the sources I used to write this story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. My wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme song. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, Thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter or wherever. You guys truly have a special place in my heart. Until next week, thanks everybody. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Thank you.